Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Because justice tech as a category is relatively nascent, there's nothing analogous to which they can compare it. And it's especially for a group of investors that typically invests in you know things that feel familiar, issues that they feel uh, closer to, or they want to invest in people who you know look like past successes that they've had. And you have an industry that's new, that's mostly led by women or people of color who traditionally get less funding to begin with. Um, it's it's really hard for them to make the connection as to you know how it can grow into such a large um, scalable business in addition to solving such critical problems. So that's why I think that it's so important for us to continue elevating both these companies and the founders that are building these amazing companies and having real tangible change on the ground to demonstrate, yes, we can do both at the same time. We can have incredible impact and build a large business. And for me and at Paladin, those are really inextricably tied because the more pro bono attorneys that we connect with people in need, the more valuable we are to our law firm and corporate clients, vice versa. And that's really what allows us to build sustainably in a really thoughtful, intentional way. Hello and welcome to Talk Justice. I'm your host, Jason Taché. Over the past few years, we've watched the justice technology industry begin to come into its own, crawling out from underneath the shadow of legal tech. There's a tension and energy flowing into the space now more than ever. However, in many ways, it's still early days when it comes to defining the industry, finding funding, and seeing exits. To help give shape to this growing space, the Justice Technology Association, a soon-to-be-launched and first-of-its-kind trade association, wants to empower the consumer legal experience through technology for the public good. To talk more about the JTA and the justice tech industry, I'm joined by three guests. Maya Markovich is the executive director of the Justice Technology Association and the Justice Tech Executive in Residence at Village Capital. Sonia Ebron is the co-founder and CEO of Courtroom 5, a service for self-represented litigants. And Kristen Sande is the co-founder of Paladin, a pro bono technology company and a partner at Long Jump, an investment firm. Thank you all for being with us. And before we jump into today's conversation, I just like to note for transparency that I am also an advisor to the JTA. Now, Maya, I want to start with you. First off, congratulations on this new project. But before we talk about what the JTA is looking to accomplish, I want to get a sense from you of what we're talking about when we talk about justice tech. Can you tell me how you have decided to define the space? Sure. Happy to frame it up. Thank you. So for purposes of the JTA, our definition is justice tech encompasses innovative technology businesses initiatives and solutions that are designed to improve or open access to the exercise of one's legal rights. Also increasing individual agency, improving outcomes for those seeking legal help and more equitably and efficiently administer a legal service or system. Okay, so in practical terms, what type of projects or or companies or kind of modes of change are we going to be looking at when it comes to the JTA? So there are plenty of legal tech organizations out there already, but we need to have one that focuses solely on justice tech. It's been undefined and unclarified area, and we need to help it flourish specifically with a focus with uh, direct-to-consumer technology. Okay. And direct-to-consumer, Sonia, to bring you in on this 
conversation. Courtroom Five is a direct consumer company, but you are a CEO. You are busy trying to grow uh, this project into something viable. Yet you have found time in your schedule to uh, be a part of the JTA, the Justice Technology Association. Why is it important to you uh, and your company to be a part of this mission? Why make time for it? Essentially, the, yeah, the short answer is it makes my job easier. One of the things I have to do as CEO is you know, maintain customer service standards, make sure our people are taken care of well. I spend a lot of time speaking with investors and I'm having to educate them over and over about the space. And of course, you know, all of us in Justice Tech have our conversations with regulators, the state bars, and I, you know, certainly a collective voice there is going to make it easier to have those conversations. Kristen, you're someone who watches this space very closely as, as both a, a co-founder and a leader of a company uh, doing pro bono work as well as a funder and someone who in the past has, has raised uh, money themselves or their company. Is the JTA unique to this space? How do you see it fitting into this larger ecosystem? You know, it's interesting because justice tech is a relatively new category. There aren't a ton of companies that define themselves in the justice tech world who are getting funding and building these large companies that also have incredible impact. So by really coming together and, and joining forces and collaborating and sharing resources and raising awareness of what we're working on, I think that we can establish ourselves more strongly as a new investable VC backable group that really helps accelerate justice tech development overall. And something to, to talk about here, Maya, you said the Justice Tech Association is focused on these companies that are what would be called B2C, right? Uh, businesses that are selling to consumers as opposed to businesses selling to other businesses, uh, like, for example, Kristen Paladin sells to law firms or uh, businesses that sell to government, I think, like Justice Text in this space, which sells transcription software to uh, public defender agencies, for example. So Kristen and Justice Text wouldn't fall into the category that kind of the Justice Tech Association is looking at. Why was that distinction important and what's gained and lost by creating that definition? Basically, the needs are very different for direct-to-consumer Justice Tech companies, as Sonia said, for consumer protection, investor education, and regulatory affairs. So B2B tends to be support and software for lawyers. Whereas what the JTA will be focusing on will be making the law or legal system more accessible to consumers. Is anything lost by bifurcating or trifurcating the, the space as it, it were by this definition? I mean, certainly. I mean, there's no question that we all have to work together, you know, to fight for access to justice and there's no single solution to the crisis. You know, we need more pro bono lawyers. We need more support of self-help centers and legal service organizations and more focus on just how widespread the challenges are. But in order to really support the companies that are, you know, have these unique needs in the direct to consumer space, we felt that the Justice Tech Association was a really strong need. And I, I want to stay on this direct to consumers point just for one more question, at least before we jump into other topics. So Sonia, focusing on consumers, which is what you do, it's what the JTA, the Justice Tech Association, uh, because they're, it's interesting because there's this massive latent market, right? Research after research shows there's tons of people that have a legal problem. They don't know that the problem is itself uh, have a legal remedy, which is like the definition of a growth opportunity for a company. It's a bunch of people that have a problem that don't know what the solution to that problem is and courtroom five or any other similarly situated company. The challenge is, and 
Becky Sandiford's research and, and plenty of other folks indicates that people think that this could just as much be a problem of luck, a problem of God, a problem of nature, than it could be a legal problem itself. Does the JTA, in your view, have a role in trying to figure out how to overcome this mismatch in the consumer market? No, no doubt about it. Absolutely. You know, there are so many justice tech companies. It's a quiet fact. We're a nascent industry, but this latent demand is drawing some very innovative solutions to it. And so to the extent that we can speak collectively, I mentioned the investor education, the regulatory conversations, but certainly speaking to the consumer market includes educating people on legal solutions to some of these problems. So yes, we're going to be able to reach that latent demand much more effectively through JTA. How does that happen through a trade association? Yeah, yeah. It's all about education, uh, ultimately. And again, I've spoken to those various markets, but if you have a dispute with a neighbor over the placement of a fence, for instance, right? Uh, you may think that's a personal issue, but if you hear about JTA, and we're going to be making some noise for sure, uh, but if you hear some of that noise, then perhaps you begin to think about the solution to your problem in a different way. Now, ultimately, that's what the law does, is have you resolve your disputes in the courts, in, in the legal sphere, rather than in the streets. And so we want to educate people, you know, consumers about the potential to solve some of their problems just by making them more aware of the solutions that are available. Interesting. Uh, and you talked about kind of this, this education of investors, and I wanted to spend a good chunk of the show talking about that. So Kristen, to bring you back into the conversation, there was this report from Village Capital that came out, I can't remember, one or two years ago. But essentially what they said was that since 2013, uh, that $77 million had gone to about 100 early stage startup uh, at the intersection of tech and, and justice. And their definition of, of justice tech was much broader than what we're talking about with the JTA. By and large, this number is low uh, for any vertical. $77 million is amount of money that an enterprise software startup or a social uh, startup could raise in a single round uh, without much trouble. Why uh, this limited funding? Uh, and I'm sure that there are plenty of reasons uh, why this number is what it is. Yeah, that's such a great question. And actually, another data point that stuck out from their report is that even though there are 200 VCs who have made these one-off kind of early stage investments, about 92% of them have just one justice tech company in their portfolio. So the two objections that I hear most often when I'm fundraising for Paladin are number one, your market isn't big enough, right? Because they're constantly looking at, you know, how big can this get? What is your total addressable market? Number two, it's not in line with our thesis. And these are two perceptions that I want to change. Number one, regarding the market, there are 5.1 billion people globally that don't have meaningful access to justice. I mean, if that, that comes pretty much the biggest addressable market that you could possibly have. And so it's a really untapped group of consumers. The second is that it's not in line with our thesis. I think as we were talking about, because justice tech as a category is relatively nascent, there's nothing analogous to which they can compare it. And it's especially for a group of investors that typically invests in you know things that feel familiar, issues that they feel uh, closer to, or they want to invest in people who you know look like 
past successes that they've had, and you have an industry that's new, that's mostly led by women or people of color who traditionally get less funding to begin with, um, it's, it's really hard for them to make the connection as to you know, how it can grow into such a large um, scalable business in addition to solving such critical problems. So that's why I think that it's so important for us to continue elevating both these companies and the founders that are building these amazing companies and having real tangible change on the ground to demonstrate, yes, we can do both at the same time. We can have incredible impact and build a large business. And for me and at Paladin, those are really inextricably tied because the more pro bono attorneys that we connect with people in need, the more valuable we are to our law firm and corporate clients, vice versa. And that's really what allows us to build sustainably in a really thoughtful, intentional way, um, which gets me excited. So definitely a lot of work to do on the education front as we were talking about, but it is just so crucial to raise awareness of why justice tech is you know, deserving of funding across many different criteria and, and important that we empower people to continue to build their businesses and demonstrate that that's true. I love that, um, Kristen. I just wanted to jump in and add one of the other things that we hear in addition to market size when talking to investors about you know, what would help them um, feel uh, comfortable and willing to do more justice tech investments. The first is deal flow. Um, well, not the first. In addition to market size, <laughs> there's also deal flow. And so what the JTA hopes to do is to act as a resource for investors and financial supporters that are looking to explore justice tech funding opportunities. That's all interesting. And I want to pull on, it's either a confluence of the things that you're talking about, Maya and Kristen, or, or maybe a fourth issue that I'm curious to get your opinion on. And Maya, I'll start with you. For many people in America, injustice is big business. And for them, it is a goose that keeps laying golden eggs. We think about private prisons and the vendors that work for them, evicting poor people uh, for richer tenants and gentrifying neighborhoods, unscrupulous consumer debt cases. There was a great report by uh, Pew Research recently on, on that topic. The list goes on. There's, there's money to be made in injustice in America. Uh, and so I'm curious, do you see it as a problem trying to convince people that maybe have a portfolio that includes these type of companies to say, uh, we have a better, kinder version of investing for you that would potentially undercut uh, this goose that keeps laying a golden egg for them? That is a critical point, Jason, actually. And one of the things that I hear quite a bit in my role as uh, EIR at Village Capital for Justice Tech is that um, the ethical complexity is something that causes some reluctance. Um, and so part of my work there is to actually establish impact frameworks to essentially support uh, folks who are new to the space and want to be involved, um, but don't even know the right questions to ask in vetting and diligence around whether or not something potentially you know, has, has the potential of having a mission pivot down the road to become predatory or to be built on a system of incarceration or of injustice. Let me jump in there Please. and add, there is lots of money to be made in injustice, but there's also money to be made in justice. We all recognize the big solution to the access to justice crisis is to make lawyers more affordable, give people the ability to hire them on an unbundled or a la carte basis. Uh, and lots of folks have tried that just a plug for courtroom five, uh, working to make it easy by educating the consumer. 
right? The reason it hasn't worked is because consumers don't know how to task a lawyer on an unbundled basis. They just have no idea uh, what is necessary at any particular uh, stage in their case. The solution to that is to prepare the user to handle their own case, the client to handle their own case. And when they have a difficult time, prepare lawyers, you know, provide lawyers who can serve them uh, on those uh, unbundled tasks. But that's the money to be made, right? This huge latent demand can actually be, can, can actually be accessed and brought to lawyers who are prepared to serve, you know, a new type of, uh, of client. There's a whole middle class that's not being served right now either by the status quo. Absolutely. And, and Maya, there was something in your answer that jumped out to me, this idea of like building these frameworks to help manage the ethical complexity. And one of the things I wanted to get a sense of, and, and Kristen, I'll start with you, are, are these double bottom line funds. Uh, so this idea that it is an investment vehicle that both cares about whether or not a project is going to make money uh, for them, but also thinks about social impact, which I think probably aligns a bit with what you're talking about when you're talking about these frameworks. Kristen, are double bottom line funds now kind of the vanguard for who's thinking about justice tech? Or is it broader than that? Do we need more double bottom line funds for justice tech to take off? I'm curious how you see this particular issue. Yeah, that's so interesting. And and just in terms of kind of definitions, just so you know how I think about double bottom line funds, to me, they are funds in which there is a direct relationship between that measurable social impact and financial returns. And traditionally, and if, you know, speaking very bluntly, a traditional VC's job is to return the fund and to make money on their initial investments, right? I think typically folks have seen justice tech or social impact companies as not necessarily aligned with that initial goal because VC money is typically poured into companies that will pursue growth at all costs. When you're in a justice tech company, that is not uh, the goal of, of the company at the end of the day is growth at all costs. Really your growth is around impact and scaling sustainably and intentionally and thoughtfully because there are so many second and third order consequences of your work that have high stakes impact on people's lives. And so you want to be really thoughtful about the way that you're building the company so that you can optimize for both that impact and also become a large sustainable business. So I think until we have more examples of that, it's going to be hard for people to reconcile the two, although I think that we are getting there. The other thing that I'll mention is that we found a lot of success at Paladin in working with kind of smaller micro VCs and angel investors and angel groups where people are really well aligned with the mission and what we're working on. And they have the networks that help provide us access to folks in the space to think about how we can build as intentionally as possible. And so, you know, perhaps there, there doesn't need to be this focus so much on these large funds pouring as much money into justice tech and really more around finding the right funds and the right people so that we can build, you know, the strongest network to help accelerate our growth as meaningfully as possible. There need not be a, a fork in the road between impact and, and profit or growth, right? Our jobs as entrepreneurs is, in fact, to narrow that gap, to do well by doing uh, good. And I think there are business models where we can uh, make more money, speaking frankly to, to Kristen's point, we can make more money by having impact. There's not necessarily a trade-off there. Well, another interesting point is that at Paladin, we think about 
how do we leverage the revenue that we get from firms and corporates to then reinvest in the legal services community in a way that they wouldn't have access to resources otherwise? So for example, we leverage some of the money that we make from the firms to build free tools for legal services to better intake and curate and refer out their pro bono clients so that we can serve more people in need at the end of the day. And that reinvestment in the ecosystem, I think, is also really key to making sure that we elevate the entirety of the justice tech community and not just one side of it. So what, what I'm hearing is that, uh, and perhaps I've written too much about the space and I've become too cynical, you're telling me that there's business models uh, where we don't have to sell user data and people's private information for, for justice tech to be successful. You bet. Uh, they are. Okay. <laughs> right. That's right. Well, I, I, I like to hear that. Um, one of the things, Kristen, you mentioned early on, and you just kind of touched on it again, is this idea of educating funders. Kristen, you and I have talked about this in previous shows, that there is this mismatch. And I think the mismatch is multiple fold. You have written a lot about the mismatch between funders and founders being based on funders tend to be white and male. Founders in this space tend to be racial or ethnic minorities and uh, disproportionately women. And studies justice tech, like the work that you have done, as well as other industries have shown that there's this thing where people like to invest in people that look like them. And uh, Hispanic women do not look like white men, it turns out. So there is a disconnect in regards to seeing oneself in, in the founder. The other thing I think is unique to the justice tech space is that the problems that we are talking about, by and large, are not the problems that rich people deal with, whether it's contact with the criminal justice system, System, being evicted. These are things that just rich folks have enough money to just plaster over uh, those types of, of concerns in their own lives. How does education of funders get us over these mismatchness? I feel like it's one thing to educate somebody about, you know, the hellaciousness of the criminal justice system for a poor individual. It's another thing to get a rich white man in San Jose to live in the shoes of a minority founder. Where does this even begin here? And Kristen, I'll start with you. Oh my goodness. How much time do we have? <laughs> yeah, this is something that I think a lot about, especially now that I'm on the other side of the table, right? And writing checks is as often as I'm you know, pitching folks for investment in Paladin. And Oh my goodness, there are so many layers to this question. And, you know, I think the first is, as I mentioned, kind of seeking out the right folks who are going to understand what you're working on, why it's important, and really be able to see the vision with you and not spending too much time on, on the folks that don't. You know, those are not your people necessarily. And you want to make sure you have people along for the ride who are going to be invested both financially, but also, you know, with their energy and their networks and helping you succeed because that. That network is so important and crucial, especially in the early stages of a company. I think the second is just finding commonality and really understanding, you know, what are the funders looking for? What are their theses? What do they care about personally, professionally? And figuring out, you know, where, where you kind of fit into that. So if it is, you know, a certain area, practice area or cause that gets them excited, how do you tap into that and really explore together what synergies you have to help accelerate uh, solutions in that space, or you know, maybe it is on the business side, and you can brainstorm new business models that help your company grow that you can then in turn reinvest. So uh, there's there are definitely a few levels of education, but that's 
how I approach these conversations and thinking about, you know, who are the right people to join Paladin's Round who can really help us grow together. And then for the people that uh, I'm really excited about, you know, outside of that, where can we find commonalities so that we can pursue a, a common cause together and really continue to proliferate and grow? And, and then the last part that I would say is that I do, I know I, I come back to this often, but just raising awareness of these companies, what they're doing, their founders' stories, those are all just so powerful. And I think the more that we can share the successes and the impact that folks are having, the more familiar this type of work will feel to investors and the more familiar the founders will feel to them and the more likely they are to invest as a result of that. That's such a powerful statement. And I, I would just tee off, that's the way I sort of uh, bridge the gap as well. Storytelling, nothing beats storytelling. You know, I, I meet with lots of investors who love the potential for what we're doing, the impact, but just don't get how we're going to help all these poor people, right? And part of the education that we need to do and that I find myself doing is that uh, these aren't necessarily poor people. Certainly, you know, we're at a price point where we can serve a lot, a broad range of, of folks, but this is very much a middle-class problem. The inability to access our justice system is primarily a middle-class problem. And so I often share my own personal story. I'm not a lawyer, by the way, uh, uniquely here, right? I got into this because I found myself sued and couldn't afford a lawyer. But I was, I was a college professor. I had a great middle-class income uh, and still couldn't afford a lawyer. And that is what so many of our fellow Americans are, are facing. I find myself really telling that story uh, day in and day out with investors just to get over the hump. You know, they don't want to invest in solutions for poor people, right? That's just the reality there. It's expensive. It sounds like a nonprofit, et cetera, et cetera, you know, but we do have to have them understand it's a middle-class problem. There is a huge addressable market here for them. And so yeah, storytelling is, is what it's all about. I mean, that's one of the many hurdles that I think founders are, are facing in this particular space. And the other ones that I want to touch on, because I find this particularly interesting with the JTA and Maya, uh, are arguably one of the reasons why direct-to-consumer justice tech hasn't taken off in a big way are due to regulatory hurdles. Uh, largely unlicensed practice of law, this idea that we don't know where the line is between uh, giving legal information and legal advice, which is uh, hobbling, I think, a lot of ideas in the space. And this is something that uh, your organization wants to tackle. So I'm curious, what's the, what's the goal here for the JTA and what does success look like to you? With respect to the regulatory reform advocacy, um, it's important to frame it up by saying that, you know, while legal tech mainly operates as you've said, within these existing regulations regarding the business and practice of law, and thus, you know, may have a more vested interest in the status quo, our focus, because it's on these people interacting with the legal systems and the legal customer, we are up against a system in which there is a lot of consternation around, you know, the new systems and structures and modes of going to market are even, are even viable. So, Specifically, one of the reasons why JTA was founded was because of this need for refocusing on the consumer and not necessarily system or attorney protection. So there are alternatives um, that can result in positive outcomes with complete consumer protections. And you know what we're going to be doing is talking about how much we can support those efforts. I'm always interested 
in learning curves and and what people are are going through when they when they try something new. You come out of big law and investment arm before coming in and, and helping found the the JTA. And arguably the regs that we're talking about are the very things that helped your previous employer be successful. And I'm sure there's many other differences. So I'm I'm interested just to hear from you what lessons from previous work are transferable uh, to the justice tech space and, and where are the learning curves for you? Like what's new? There are a number of similarities and I'm seeing a lot of parallels actually because legal tech was a non a non thing <laughs> six years ago. It wasn't a term, neither was legal operations, neither was justice tech. So all of these things really have come out in the last few years. So, you know, the similarities are things like, you know, building an emerging ecosystem that aims to benefit all the players bringing an entrenched system where everything is aligned against innovation into the 21st century. You know, the scope is daunting, but there's a lot of opportunity. And then as for learning curves, I mean, my heart has always been in justice tech and in the social impact space. It was the reason why I went to law school in the first place. Um, and so I've been doing it for years on my own. Um, I would say that, you know, full-time in the space now, you know, impact investing has additional complexity and the direct to consumer versus supporting the business and practice of law are different. You know, it's, it's all logical and makes sense, especially with, you know, the ability for me to kind of understand the high level, you know, structures that we're dealing with, um, but also, you know, focusing on the legal customer and having it be client centric is, is definitely something that I think we need to push all of the practice of law towards but it's particularly germane here. As we get ready to, to wrap up this show and this conversation has been great and thank you all very much for, for taking part in it. Kristen, if you had your magic wand and you could make one of these problems go away uh, with a, a quick flit of the wrist, I'm curious, which one would you tackle first? That is a great question because there are so many different solutions that we need to help accelerate this, this new category. So I think for me, it's it's helping solidify justice tech as a category that folks see as investable and VC backable so that we can get funding to more founders faster. I think that's the only way that we really accelerate change. And that means starting with a handful of really successful justice tech founders. So how do we make Sonia as successful as possible and all the other um, initial you know, companies we have in this cohort uh, so that we can really pave a path together in terms of what successful justice tech entrepreneurs look like? And Sonia, I know the, the people that listen to this podcast are very much the people in, in the vein like yourself. And I'm assuming there's more than one founder that's probably going to listen to this episode. So if there's anybody out there that is interested in joining up with the JTA, how is membership going to work? How do people join up and, and help uh, build this ecosystem as we've been talking about? We're a few days from launch here. Um, and I think as we begin, we are probably going to curate companies in the space very carefully. Again, our primary goal is stamping a solid set of consumer protection standards. And you know, we, we wanna draw a line on, on between folks who are really taking care of their customers and those who are more focused on, on financial goals, for instance. So we're going to be invite only initially. But our, 
our primary goal for the next few months is going to be carefully growing that critical mass of companies that you know makes this trade organization real. After that, we will have, you know, we'll sort of open the doors and let some other folks in, but we're going to be very careful about uh, who joins initially. And for context, uh, Sonia said that they'll be launching in a few days. Uh, we are recording this on February 4th. Maya, I want to end with you uh, where we started. This journey is obviously still very new. What's next uh, for the JTA and how should people follow its progress? Well, as Sonia said, we're a few days out from launch. There's a lot of activity. We've got an, a really a stunning group of advisors that we've incredibly honored to have on board with us. Um, we've got some great momentum and we've got a lot of plans in the works for immediately post-launch. <laughs> so right now um, we have a splash page on our website, justicetechassociation.org. And you can sign up there to be alerted as soon as we launch and, um, and then to follow our activities in the next few months as we get our feet under us. Wonderful. And with that, I'd like to thank Maya, Sonia, and Kristen for being with us today on Talk Justice. For links to what we discussed, check out our show notes. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, give us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jason Taché, and for everyone here at Talk Justice, thank you for listening. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.